Let us pray. Father God, please pour out your spirit upon preaching of the word. For the precious name of Jesus Christ, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've often mentioned to people how Romans 8 was the passage that God used in order to change my heart towards him and to, to bring me into belief. And, and yet this chapter, which we're going to go through way too fast, but that just means we get to return here another time. This chapter of 1 Timothy 1 and especially about how Paul describes himself nearing the end of his ministerial life, what he kind of centers the Christian life upon, even how he opens this chapter, was really, especially early on in my walk, and really continues to be this helpful guidepost of a chapter to make sure that not only me, but all of us are well-centered in our understanding of the things of God, our understanding of things like being justified by God or being sanctified by God, the power of his grace, that the power of his grace is actually a twofold power. It's not just free justification from sins that uh, I've been saved from sin, but it also accompanies with it a power to be transformed by grace. and yet as this passage will hint at through Paul's own testimony in verses 12 through 16, how grace changes us isn't necessarily how the world might first expect. So with that to begin with, let us look at this chapter. Paul begins this chapter talking about the command of God that has, and he credits that command of God with what Paul has become. Who he is, Paul says right at the start, is not by his own doing, not by his own wisdom, not even by a choice or decision he made, but who he is started by the command of God. The starting point of a faithful follower of Christ does not begin by our command, but by our Lord's command. And that's a good thing because the first direct quality Paul brings up about our God is a quality that we don't have inherently in ourselves, a quality we actually talked about in Titus last week, a quality all throughout these pastoral epistles more than any other letters or books of the Bible by percentage. And it's the quality that our God is a saving God. And at the pleasure of his command, our God saves us, awakening us to the love of God, making us children of faith who enjoy his gifts of grace, of mercy, and of peace. This is the shared story of any and all believers. It is foundational for Paul. That's why he starts there and for Timothy to understand and for us to understand. God's command goes forth. And our saving God brings forth those whom his word commands. It's, it, I mean, it's in the first chapter of the Bible. The, 
God's word goes out and life springs up. God's commands go up, out, and life springs forth. Grace, mercy, and peace follow him. And this is an important thing for us to understand right at the beginning, because during the Reformation, there was this debate. What should be the core of the Christian faith going on in the Latin church, the Western church? Was it to be a sacrament? Was it to be a specific office? Was it to be an impressive list of of theologians and those saints who had gone before that a denomination said are all ours. And the reformers, they had this crazy idea. And it is a crazy idea, and yet it's a biblical idea that the core of our faith was our union with Christ and the fact that through the cross, If we believed upon him, we received both grace and faith, a a life redeemed by his blood that we could be at peace with God. And yet grace so powerful that it began began to sanctify us, to change us. No idea of like some sort of carnal Christian in the Reformation church. That was a later idea. That was to be the core of our faith. And The Latin church scoffed at such an idea. They said to such an idea, oh, you Protestants would be hellions of iniquity if you believe that. If you believe that salvation is just granted to you, what's to cause you from stop sinning? You'll just keep sinning so that grace may abound. And the apostle Paul says, oh, by no means, but. That was the criticism. That was the argument. That grace that good would lead us into hellish kinds of living. And the Apostle Paul does something amazing in this passage. Something totally countercultural. You want to use that buzzword. I mean, what would you do if somebody walked up to you and said, you are a hellion of iniquity. You're a terrible person. You just believe this grace stuff so you can go on being an awful person. What we want to do is say things like, oh, I'm no worse than this person or that person. Oh, I'm not so bad. I do this and this. I volunteer here and there. Paul doesn't do that in this passage. And he doesn't just talk about who he was in the past. If you look at verses 12 through 16, especially, I think, on 16, he says, basically, I am the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. That in regards to evaluating everybody in the world, and by the way, he didn't speak this way earlier in his ministry. It takes years of sanctification for Paul to express it this way. 
I really can't imagine, Paul says, basically, anybody who's worse than me. He leans into it. And you know, we as Protestants at our core are best and most distinctive when we lean into that. It seems scary, but you know, one of even the distinctive elements of us as Protestants is, and, and this is why maybe we, we're going to have to say goodbye to this hymnal at some point. We've been unafraid to call ourselves wretches and worms and wayward and lost and blind in our hymns. We've been unafraid traditionally at our root core, at our best, to speak that way because it gives us an opportunity then to proclaim the grace of Christ. And, and, I, and if we water that down, if we lose that aspect of our faith walk, we have lost something that is most unfortunate to lose. Let me try to catch up with my notes now. We don't want to lose that. We're not our best with Christian platitudes. So Paul begins this first chapter in one sense, stating to Timothy that at our core, if you cut us, we should bleed out that our God is a saving God who through his command, through his sacrifice, has saved wretches like us, granting us grace, peace, and mercy. And yet, what do we do as the Christian church? We can often get distracted with this as the core of our Christian faith, with things of secondary importance, as verses 3 and 4 of our passage begin to show us. There are always threats to Christianity and to our faith that try to distract the church or take the church in the wrong direction. Paul is laying out the threats to the core of our faith, really from verses 3 through 10. And he states that the first threat is teaching new and novel doctrine within congregations. That was a threat Paul first prophesied uh, about for this church of Ephesus that he's writing to and writing to Timothy by extension in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, that they were going to struggle with as he was leaving. To quote from the word of God, Paul warned Ephesus then, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. We Christians, as the Protestant hymn goes, are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to follow foolish things. And it's really based on our sheepish nature. Our sheepish nature is bad, like that joke. That was a bad dad joke. It was, it's bad. We as sheep are prone to be led to that green pasture, that good place to eat at. And we go, oh, wait, what's going over on that field? Hmm. I wonder what's going on in that field. And and incorporated into this, the reality of the church as expressed through the gospels by Christ the Lord is dressed up within the church, our wolves in sheep's clothing that love to sow division. Oh, you, you don't know about that new idea, that new doctrine, that new teaching? 
you don't know that, for instance, we can, we can now just bless homosexual marriage or things like that? But go over to this field. It's really good. It's got a different diet. Not so much feasting on God's word, but, oh, it's, it's good. It's tolerant. It's wonderful over there. And, and there's a lot of peace over there. Unless you continue eating in this field, then, then there's no peace for you from us. But there's, it's a wonderful field. Sheep, the wolves love to get us to go to other fields. And Paul is laying out to Timothy and warning the church, do not stray. Do not go down the rabbit trails. Do not change the core of Christianity, which is to be centered on the right kind of doctrine. Here's a warning against false doctrine. How do you know about right doctrine? You know about right doctrine by studying the word of God. Well, it doesn't get people to come out, you know, all excited in one sense, Every sermon series, every teaching series that we should do has, should have some doctrinal reality, should be tied to the Word of God and thus instructive to the Word of God. We are not here to study chicken soup for the soul because chicken soup for the soul does not center upon Christ. But we sheep are prone to wander. How do you, as the popular preaching illustration goes, how do you, how does it counterfeiter, somebody who can tell a counterfeit, figure that out. He studies the original. And then next, Paul warns about things such as myths, genealogies, and other speculations Christians get off course from on the core of their faith. You know, I, I came from the denomination that claims to have the richest of all histories. And it has these great truths that you need to believe in order to be a faithful member of them. And I remember as God's saved me, it was just like, it was such a radical reality. Not that I had never like seen the Bible, but now he allowed me to see those word of God in a whole new way. And I realized that this Bible, I assume, taught so many of these Myths and superstitions and fables didn't actually teach that. It had a purifying power to it. But this also, this is not just something of my former church, but there are some notable landmines in the Protestant world as well. Oh, wait, 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 wait. What eschatological view do you have? I don't know if you can be saved or... Oh, wait, wait. What specific Bible translation did you read from? Oh, that's a problem. Or, oh, oh, that, you haven't heard about a carnal Christian? There, there are all sorts of false things, false ministries, false ministers who go haywire with the guiding posts that are to be scripture that, and, and good doctrine and put in these rabbit trails for the sheep's, sheep of God. And as Paul states in verse 5, we're not to be about that. The aim of our charge, the orders which we cannot surrender, is a love rooted that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, a sincere faith that has to be an informed faith, basically rooted in good doctrine. But what would the opposite look like? 
What is the thing that those who get Christianity wrong most often get wrong? And the Apostle Paul is glad we asked such a question. Because from verses 6 through 10, he makes clear it's often centered around God's law. And to explain what Paul's getting at in verses 6 through 10, I think it would be helpful to talk about garbage. Lately, our church has been producing quite a bit of garbage. And I mean that in the kindest way I can say that. Tuesday, we offer our church building to a CC group, to a school group. They come in, there's about 40 people who are having meals, having lunch together. They make garbage. Wednesday, we have the children's study and the women's study. They often like coffee and these sorts of things. They make garbage. Thursday nights also makes garbage. There are apparently employees who sometimes work here in the church, right, Terry? That that all throughout the week, they're throwing away papers, throwing away random things in the bins. They make garbage. Sometimes we have events on Saturday. They make, that makes garbage. After the worship service downstairs, we're going to have a time of fellowship. It will make garbage. Plus, on property... There are five ladies, two Labradors, and one man on property who live here all the time, and they make garbage in their home, and sometimes they clean that garbage. And it usually creates a dilemma around Sunday after church, around 1 o'clock, or at Monday, before the garbage goes out on Tuesday, on Monday evening, where we have more garbage that we know what to do with. And so what do you do? That's when you call Rose Kramer. That's when you call Bruce and Bobby Clydesdale and you go there. Or if you got to stop at the Harleysville Walmart, you go into the Harleysville Walmart, but use the trash cans that are right by all the cart returns. That's what you do with the garbage. That's how you solve the problem. Actually, I heard we're allowed to get a third large trash can. I think we should do that from the, from the garbage thing. Let's go back to this passage. Why people make a mess of the law is they don't know what to do with the garbage. Last night, we had a celebration in the evening for Caitlin's birthday and a bunch of families here at the church. They came, you made garbage, but towards the end of it, they, they had those glow bracelets and stuff. And so they turned off the lights. And then eventually, as all good things come to an end, it came to an end. So the lights came back on. And Caitlin said something. She said, you know, when the lights were off, I thought the, pl the place was clean. But once you slipped the, we slipped, flipped the switch, you could see all the mess that was made. And we knew we had to clean it off. I just wanted to turn off the light again. And the reality is, that's what we do with the scriptures. Here Christ is described as a light and a light that shines in the darkness. And it turns on and we can see the garbage of sin and it clutters our life. It clutters the past. It covers our, clutters our present. And we know it's until we go to see him face to face, it's going to, also be found in the future. 
And the response of Christianity far too often is, temp is to be tempted to either shut the lights back off, close the book. It shines lights on, light on sins. I mean, we saw the list of sins there, I think, in verses 8 and 9. Boy, those aren't popular to talk about in public these days. Close the book, turn off the light so we don't see the mess. Or, or we just start sure, shoving it under the couch, you know? Or if you think my room is bad, go look at the other one. Go look at the other person's room. And when we do that, we make a mess of Christianity. We make a mess of grace. And we know nothing of the, the grace and honesty and boldness that Paul is displaying when he declares I can't imagine another sinner worse than me. We're to be people that understand that the cross is the place where the garbage got, went to, our sins went to. And when the church gets off track, it gets off track on how to deal with sin. We are a people prone to struggle against the words of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which declare that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and we don't believe the second half, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe Christ to be stingy with his promises, and yet the example of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 makes clear Recognizing sin and confessing sin is a normal part of the Christian life. Because when it comes to judgments, let's be clear, the law is a standard which provides the ability for judgments to come. And we just worry and fret about judgments. And yet, the reality is the gospel is a promise that we are not too dirty for Christ to cleanse us. You know, for instance, I'm, I'm about to be reviewed by the consistory, the yearly review. And, you know, what does the old man want? I want a good review. You know, I want, I want a review where they go into the room and they go, ah, oh, it all looks great with you pastorally, Kevin. All sunshine and rainbows. Yet I've been around that room, and I know that's not true. I know there's plenty of messes. I, I, I'm not the, the perfect pastor, Pastor Ford, who's, who's done this many more decades than I have. He, I'm sure he would tell you the same. I'm confident he would tell you the same. It's okay for us to acknowledge the garbage. Because the garbage gives us an opportunity to enjoy the grace. And I used to work at the Las Vegas Rescue Mission. I would sign up to do one-on-one -on -one counseling weekly for six months with individuals. And I'd, I'd stack them so I'd have a few individuals, half an hour each one. And so the first meeting, it never failed in the first meeting. I always knew what the course of the six months would look like. Because here they come. They're at a rescue mission. They were homeless. They have their, their life was basically as destitute as destitute becomes. And so what is their temptation as they walk in the room and they meet me for the first time? 
They take out their little flashlight and they shine light on a couple pieces of garbage in their life. I have this reality. I had that in my past. I have this, I have that. And then they, they quickly flip it off. And, and it never failed to surprise them how I would respond. How I would respond is go over to the light switch. Let's see what this does. Flip it. And just let them see my room. Let them see and, and learn about some of the things that Christ cleaned out from my room, but other things I was struggling with, which was me is always food is one of them. I love to eat. I love good food. Carne out of burritos. This is the death of me. But, and other things, more tangible things. And it was, it never failed. I could know in their response to that what the course of the next six months would look like. Because they would either be really excited about the God who could take the garbage out and for and take it and root it out of their life, or they'd be going through the motions. And they, they'd want to talk about something else, you know, the football game, the, the basketball game. You, it never failed. And, and so I would know, okay, this is an evangelism type of individual. And actually, for the people who got it, I purposely would schedule the people who got the idea of grace at the end of my counseling session so that we often went for two, three hours. With my wife texting me, where are you? The call of the Christian is not pretending we are clean in ourselves. But it's in the confession that even though there is garbage we still sometimes hold on to, we remember the grace of God is sufficient to not only cleanse us from all unrighteousness, being justified by our Lord, but also to grow us in obedience to him. How do you feel about the story of the garbage man who removed sin on Calvary? How impressed are you by that? I'm telling you, I know the Lord is incredible and he's generous and he's gracious. And we have to, to stop fighting that desire or to, to always self-justify, to make a mess of the law. The warning is actually, even in this text, the end of the chapter warns what a shipwrecked kind of relationship with God looks like that basically the entire boat needs to be fixed and rebuilt. I'll close here. When it comes to being able to shine the light on the problem of the garbage of our sin, I think of a story I once read in a commentary, and it's a man was working late at night outdoors in this large, you know, kind of, it was like a construction building. And he's working on the edifice and the outside and there's loud machines also part of this project. 
and he's up on the roof in the darkness and he slips and he's he's able to grab a hold of basically a rail and he's holding on to that rail and he's trying to scream out he he, he understands that below him if he if he were to let go is certain death he's far too high and so he's screaming out, somebody help me. Somebody help me, please. I'm going to die. Somebody help me, please. But yet nobody could hear him over the machinery. And so one by one, each finger began to slip. And eventually, in the power of his own strength, he had to let go. And he fell. And he fell down. And he fell down only about six inches because scaffolding was right below him. He wasn't going to die. He just did not know that yet. Our confession of sin is not certain death. It's actually a certain opportunity for God to speak life into us through his grace. What might look like in the darkness, death, in the light of Christ is new life. What foundation are you standing upon? Are you clinging to your own righteousness? I even think of, uh, you know, it's, this is not just a question for young children, but for all of us. What are we clinging to on that day where we see his face and behold him? And if you're clinging to your own works, if you're clinging to turning off the light switch, if you're clinging to comparing your garbage to your neighbor's garbage, well, that idea is garbage and needs to be repented of. Christ came to save the lost, so sheep come back into his field. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, it's a scary thing to let go. It's a scary thing to let go of our righteousness and to declare that in ourselves we are nothing but a wretch, but a sinner, but a worm, and simply to thy cross we can cling. Help us in our fear. Help us in our lack of faith. And then, Lord, transform us. Help us with the garbage. Help purify us and cleanse us from our sin. Let that grace be a grace that finds us each and every morning. Amen.